Not all readers are leaders, but all leaders are readers. Harry S. Truman. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Intentional Living and Leadership with me, Cal Walters. My goal on this podcast is to deliver inspiration, encouragement, and wisdom to help you live a more intentional life, to help you inspire others, and to help you make a unique impact on the world. Today, you're going to hear an interview that I did with one of my best friends. His name is Rajiv Srinivasan. Rajiv is currently a global client director at LinkedIn, where he leads a worldwide and multifunctional team supporting relationships for three of LinkedIn's top 10 accounts. Rajiv graduated in the top 5% of his class from West Point, which is where he and I met. He was also on the dean's list at West Point. He received a MS in applied mathematics from Columbia University, and he will also be graduating this May with his MBA from Wharton. His wife, uh, amazing wife, Chelsea, is also a Wharton graduate. After West Point, Rajiv deployed to Afghanistan as a platoon leader. In Afghanistan, Rajiv did over 300 combat patrols, and he was awarded the Bronze Star and received the Combat Action Badge for his time in Afghanistan. After that, Rajiv transitioned out of the military and moved to Silicon Valley. Rajiv is part of the founding team at Morta Security, which is a cybersecurity company that was acquired by Palo Alto Networks in 2013. After Morta was acquired, Rajiv became a enterprise account manager at Mobile Iron. After that, Rajiv became a global account manager at VMware. Rajiv is also an Eagle Scout. He's an avid snow skier, and you're going to hear him talk about a scary incident that he had while skiing at Lake Tahoe. He's an avid musician. He plays the guitar, the ukulele, the piano. He's a vocalist. He has also climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. He has completed the New York City Marathon, the Marine Corps Marathon, the Escape from Alcatraz Triathlon, which sounds pretty interesting. He has also been a contributor to the New York Times and Time on military and veterans issues. Rajiv is someone that ever since he and I met back in probably 2005 has inspired me with his energy, with his productivity, with his depth of knowledge of so many different topics. And you're going to hear in this interview, we talk about his love of books and how he has managed to read in 2019, 76 books. Incredible. And we go through the process that he uses for reading, how he has done a digital declutter to allow himself to have some of that time and space to read. We talk about some of Rajiv's favorite books, uh, including a few surprising recommendations. I think that you're going to love this episode. I think you're going to love this conversation. I got so much just by listening to Rajiv and hear him talk about all of these wonderful books that he's read. And the, I think the great takeaway is that with intentionality, anyone can develop a habit and a love of reading. And I think it's an incredible discipline to potentially pick up in, in the new year. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with my good friend Rajiv Srinivasan. Rajiv, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. It is an honor to be a part of this. So am I catching you in San Francisco? Or are you in Tahoe? Where Are you somewhere around the world? Where are you right now? <laughs> Today I'm in uh, my spot in San Francisco. Uh, 
my wife and I are just enjoying a wonderful Sunday together. And uh, it's quite nice outside, so we're very excited. That's awesome. I'm so jealous. I love your your spot in San Francisco. Well, um, yeah, so I'm so pumped to have you on. I really appreciate it. There's so many topics that I want to talk to you about today. And if we don't hit them all, we'll just we'll just bring you back on. So I wanted to start by asking you kind of a funny question, but there's a reason behind it. Do you remember the first time that you and I met? Like it was yesterday, Cal. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I believe it was 2005. We were both, it was a Sunday at West Point. I was in, uh, the casual uniform of the day, walking into the mess hall, trying to get my Sunday breakfast. And I saw this, uh, um, I remember you were, you looked so innocent. I mean, you, you were dressed up in your, in your grades and you had, I think your Bible on your table with you and you're just eating alone at this big, table actually i remember the hall itself was pretty empty and i just said you know what i'm gonna join this cat he's my classmate i'm gonna go make conversation and uh turned out to be something very special oh that's neat man i I was curious if you remembered it the same way i did and the reason i wanted to ask you that question is because that's that's really where our relationship started and i remember sitting down with you and i think we talked for an hour or two it was insane i really didn't plan on being there for that long but we talked and we hit different topics. And I remember, you may not know this, but I walked away from that conversation so impressed by you. And one of the things that really impressed me was your depth of knowledge about all of these various topics. And you also had this unique ability to talk about the topics. So I walked away thinking, how the heck does this guy do it? And so my first question for you is, how have you, and that was probably, you were probably 18, 19 at that point. Yeah. How yeah. have you, how have you cultivated and don't be, don't be modest here. I'm bringing you on the show because I want you to share so other people can, can learn. But how have you cultivated such a knowledge on so many different topics? And and this is still true today, but can you just kind of talk through what you think has helped you gain such a grasp of so many different topics? You know, that's a very difficult question, right? Because I think, uh, first off, the, the assumption in the question is that I do have a, a deep grasp of, of a dozen or two different topics or quite a few topics. I think a better way to say it is that I'm just really curious because the minute I find any level of depth in a subject, that's the moment where you see how far you still have to go, right? Mm-hmm. And I think honestly, what it comes down to is a sincere curiosity about the way the world works and how things move, how decisions are made. I think it really stems from a sense of drive and ambition that was instilled in me at a very early age, you know, being the uh, son of immigrant parents. And uh, I was born in India myself. I came to this country and we moved to a rural town in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Roanoke, Virginia. And uh, I was one of very, very few people who looked like me, worshipped the way my family worshipped, ate the way my family ate. We were a cultural anomaly. And it just, uh, and you know, there were some kids that, you know, were um, uh, hostile to us and to me for those differences. And, you know, kids will be kids. And uh, mm-hmm. I think what I left with was the sense of like, I'm not going to let that stop me. 
I am going to overcome all of these challenges. I just had this tremendous drive and ambition from an early age. And so it led to this drive to be successful academically, to walk into every engagement, knowing that I would have my facts straight. And so the le- even in my current role, I think it's just a level of preparation that I perform for even day-to-day tasks is probably beyond what most people do. And so it's a, it stems from a little bit of insecurity, uh, and <laughs> that I, that I experienced, uh, when, when I was a child and the, uh, the fruits of that insecurity are, have, you know, recently been harvested. And I think, uh, I just decided I'm going to keep some of those habits. Uh, but now it's fueled by something way different, which is a sincere desire to just understand the world, how it mm. works and, uh, just be a better man. Do you remember a period in your life where you, I guess maybe looking back where you think, man, that's when I really became curious about the world. Or were you always that way as far back as you can remember? Yeah. And, and this is actually, it'll, the, the bottom line is it's a compliment to my parents. My parents gave me the longest leash possible. They mm-hmm. let me fall down. They let me explore. They let me fail. And, you know, you want to talk about curiosity. There is, it, it is a muscle right? Curiosity is a muscle and it's got to be strengthened. It's got to be challenged. And uh, there is no better developmental uh, time in our life to develop that curiosity than when we're children. And I think that's where it comes from. My parents just really let me exercise that curiosity muscle in any way, shape or form. They let me read whatever I wanted to read. They let me, they made me be resourceful. I remember asking questions about science, electricity, Mm. uh, biology even. And my parents would literally say, well, wh- how do you, how can we find this answer out? Who can we talk to? Can you look it up in the dictionary first? Like they wouldn't just give me the answer. They wanted me to go discover it and find it for myself. And, um, you know, those little moments build up into a kind of a sense of character and self-reliance, not just on being able to take a, you know, we, I think when we hear the term self-reliance, we think about, I can care for myself. I can provide for myself. But does it also mean that I can go find the answers to my questions on my own? Am I resourceful? And uh, that's, I think, where, you know, my parents really went above and beyond. So they gave me the longest leash. They let me exercise that curiosity muscle. And they forced me to go find it, find the answers to those questions myself. And, of course, they gave me the resources to do so. The minute the Internet came out, I remember the first Internet connection my family got. They were early adopters, right? My, uh, uh, I, I remember having this big cumbersome box in our, my dad's <laughs> office <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was like the fanciest thing we owned by a mile. And, uh, I just glued in, I could answer any question I wanted, uh, with this machine. And it was so cool. Uh, they bought me books when I, you know, asked books or rather they took me to the library when I wanted to go look up books in the library. Uh, So yeah, just really helping me exercise that curiosity without giving me the answers, I think is a pretty key. Wow. That's so cool. And I, especially as a parent hearing that, it makes me want to replicate that for my daughter. Are there any ways that they incentivized you to be curious or explore in, in kind of very specific ways? Would they, you know, give you money or reward you? Or was it more just through the way they modeled that or encouraged you, or as you said, just kind of gave you a long leash? You know, I think 
And even to this day, I think this is the reward is the aha, the sense mm. of wonder, the sense of inspiration, the, yeah. when, the, the ability to tell a story to someone else and strike a chord of excitement in them, right? So when I would report back what I had learned, uh, my parents, whether it was genuine or feigned, they acted excited. That I, and I'm sure they were, you know, unimpressed by the answers of simple questions that I was able to discover, but they were probably more <laughs> impressed that I was able to find them on my own at a young age. And, uh, I think that was the positive reinforcement I needed. The reality is yeah. that curiosity by in and of itself does not have a reward. And I think the minute we start attaching a tangible reward to it is the minute that we actually stop benefiting from curiosity, right? And we know in as, as adults, we know that science and research doesn't always have a commercial end. We don't really know where it's going, but it's that process of discovery itself, which is valuable. And uh, sometimes it doesn't lead anywhere. Sometimes it leads somewhere, uh, but uh, we got to reward the effort. One of our mutual friends, Chris Gakey, you know, he was, he was someone who was killed in Afghanistan, but I recall, and I know that he impacted you as well. But one of the things that always stood out to me about him was also his curiosity. Chris was always asking questions. He was always reading and reflecting, questioning himself. Uh, and one of the things that Chris had, which you have too, is a love of books. And uh, I think that when we talk about intentional living, it's interesting. My journey with books started a lot later than yours did. I think I probably discovered and became in love with books probably about four years ago, which kind of makes me feel like I'm, I'm way behind. And as I've started to read, I've discovered what you talked about, that that learning and, and growing, it's just this, it's its own gift in and of itself. And it's almost, it kind of goes to the idea Warren Buffett and Bill Gates had of, if I could have one superpower, it would be that I could read faster because you, you get this appetite for more and more knowledge. So I know that's kind of a long lead in, but I, I'd love to transition to talking about how you've developed a discipline of reading, especially in yeah. a world that's increasingly difficult to read with all the distractions we have. I'd, so first question is, how many books did you read last year or this past year? This past year in 2019, I have read uh, 76 books now. Wow. Um, yeah. That is incredible. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Wow. It's th this was a little bit of an excessive year to be honest. Uh and I went above and beyond. I think I set a goal at the beginning of 50 books. I I I had been I started out my reading journey actually turned on again um only about 4 years ago, Cal. And okay. uh All right. so you and I are actually not too far apart here, but I started out trying to read <laughs> one book a month. Then the next year I read two books a month. Then the year after I read, uh, uh, I want, or the, and I guess this year, this past year, I wanted to read four books a month, like start getting into a habit of like a book a week. And I, you know, set that as my goal. And the reason I was able to hit that goal is because I cut the distractions out. Mm. Like, um, it's been this journey of, unplugging and a digital detox because mm -hmm. I think the first thing we got to recognize is that for, there's a difference between reading a book and reading a blog, right? Reading yeah. a book and reading a 
you know, BuzzFeed article. Reading is not equal in and of itself, right? It is books. It is long form. There is no greater act of intellectual humility than reading 80,000 words of a book of someone else's worldview, right? Especially if it's someone who you know going into the book you disagree with, which I actually did yeah. quite recently. Uh, and we'll get to that, I'm sure, in a second as we you know, continue. But so coming to the staple, the, the conclusion that I was not getting very much out of reading the newspaper, I was not really getting much out of reading blogs or Twitter or Facebook, I just decided to turn all of it off. So I don't have a Facebook account right now. I don't have a subscription to a major newspaper. I don't have a subscription to any newspaper. I do not read blogs. I don't, I don't need to. Every single, talk about intentional living. Every single minute of every single day, I want to make sure that every minute I am focused on something that is furthering my objectives in one of four areas, right? It's either my professional uh, trajectory, my community, the people that I consider a part of my global environment, uh, my family and friends, uh, my wife, my mom, my dad, my sister, Cal, Natalie, and Georgia, of course, included in that. Uh, and then, of, and then lastly is my personal development, right? Intellectually, mm. spiritually, and my health, obviously. So between my person, my family, my community, and my profession, I want every minute of every day to be focused in the development of one of those four things. So if I get a notification on Facebook, a notification of a blog post, if I read an article about, you know, politics on the front page of the New York Times, I just began to realize that those things were not adding any real value, right? I wasn't actually being a better friend because I was looking at my Facebook feed. I wasn't any better at my job or helpful to my community by reading all these articles about how angry what we are in our country, uh, you know, in either, you know, in a newspaper or on a blog. I realized that I could do way more for myself and for my community and the world, quite frankly, by reading books. Because what books do is, you know, you can't take a complex subject, a controversial subject, say immigration, and boil it down to 600 words, Right. These are really, really complex economic, social, religious issues uh, that are affected by everything from trade wars to climate change. You can't distill these complex conversations into 600 words or even a 150 character tweet or whatever. They deserve the robust attention of those who really care. And I found that the more... I focused on depth and quality of the content I was reading, namely books. Not only did I become more aware and intelligent of the issues, but I became a more compassionate and understanding man. I learned to read books by serious people who I disagree with and respect their worldview. And mainly because their worldview is indeed supported by facts. You know, there's a problem right now where, you know, facts themselves are in dispute, right? So right now I'm reading this book called Good Economics for Hard Times. And there's this quote that he, uh, that this author says, what, what is dangerous isn't making mistakes, right? With, uh, your judgment on either side of the issue. But what's dangerous is being so enamored with your own point of view that we don't let facts get in the way. Mm. 
And so what I discovered was that the more I read and dove into these deep 80,000, 100,000 word descriptions of a, a deep descriptions of a problem from multiple angles is that most people studying controversial issues actually do agree on facts. What they disagree with is on substantive value questions. Sometimes they're moral questions. Sometimes they're questions of behavioral economics. And these are things that are absolutely understandable interpretations of human nature. And that's what really started helping me become a better, more compassionate human being. I understand why someone who disagrees with my worldview feels the way they do about certain issues. And I, as a result, I'm more compassionate towards them. I listen to them. I take what they say seriously and uh, I can absorb it. And so reading has uh, been a, 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 an important part of that journey. Wow. So that, I think that really hits the why behind the reading for you. And I think what a lot of people struggle with, I would imagine, is, is kind of understanding the why. Like why read when there are all these other things are available? Have you found that that why, keeping that why in the back of your mind has helped you stay motivated to read? What's helped me stay motivated to read is now I'm sincerely depressed and in some cases horrified by the nature of, you know, news feeds, blogs, and even periodicals and their myopic view of certain issues. And I can, you know how when you go on a diet and you eat nothing but vegetables for, you know, and you eat healthy for an extended period of time, you come to a point where looking at a cheeseburger just doesn't feel right. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's bad for you. And I think that's kind of what happened to me is that just reading these really deep, provocative, thoughtful books for such a long time and then cutting on my newsfeed or my, an article and you, you can intellectually pick apart. You can read critically and you can say, well, even though I agree, I may even agree with the author's end conclusion, but if I can point out like the intellectual jumps they made to get there, you sort of feel less fulfilled by reading that article, even though it came to the same conclusion as you did. And so over time, I just realized that I'm not getting much fulfillment and I'm not satisfied with just the massive intellectual leaps that some of these periodicals and news articles and these Facebook feeds were giving me. So I just shut it off and I'm a happier man for it. Yeah. What are, what are some other things you mentioned Facebook? I think you mentioned that you don't maybe read blog posts or news feeds. What are some other things that you've maybe had to turn off or say no to that have helped sure. you cr create the space to, to read? Yeah, absolutely. So I deleted all social media from my phone. So e I even work for a social media company. I work for a company called LinkedIn. And uh, I actually do believe that LinkedIn does a lot of good for the world. Uh, and I'm very proud to be a, an employee there at this point in my life. And, uh, I don't have their app on my phone. I don't have Instagram. I'm not even cool enough to know what TikTok does, but I don't have that either. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Snapchat, all these things. But yeah, I had to like really cleanse my digital life uh, of things that were not aligned to those four buckets in my life. Family, you know, my personal well-being, my community, and my profession. So even in on my phone, I have an iPhone. And I have these, you know how on your home screen of your iPhone, you have these four 
apps that you can sort of lock as consistent apps that will stay front and center on every screen as you swipe through your menu of apps. Do you, do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? I know, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Cal, on your iPhone, what are the four apps that you have locked on your phone? I have my notes. I have my phone that makes phone calls and voicemails. I have my text messaging and I have a budget app. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, you know what, I, Cal, you're already doing what my advice to people is is even from this simple little uh, interface uh, configuration, you're actually sending a message to yourself about what your priorities are. So mm. right now on my four pinned apps, I have my notes app where I pull up and take notes about things very quickly. I have my headspace app, my meditation mm. app. Uh, yeah, and, that's, you know, that's something that I'm really forcing myself to do every day. I have my nutrition tracker, my fitness pal pinned to the homepage. And then I also have a Google Translate uh, because mm. especially in my new job, it's global. I tend to talk a lot with people from different cultures every day. And I love to be able to throw in a phrase and speak in their native tongue, even if I can't speak it very well. I mean, at least the attempt, I think, is worth noting. And so that's a, a small way where I was able to funnel my decisions and the configuration of my phone so that it was intentional. It's directed at my actual goals because when you feel obligated to have a Facebook, a Twitter, uh, you know, even your work email constantly as your front and center apps, I mean, you're just sort of allowing yourself. It's like putting donuts and saying, yeah, I may not, I don't want to eat these things, but I'm going to put them front and center on my countertop, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and just watch yourself when you're weak at night, walking through after a long day, not grab one of those things. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's the same thing when it comes to your digital interface and your customization is we got to be disciplined in designing these things, customizing these things so that we are intentional, so that the interfaces guide us to the decisions we want to make that we know we need to make. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I found too. It's kind of like the atomic habits idea of making, if you want to cut a habit, you got to make it difficult. You got to make it painful. If you want to create a habit, you have to make it easy. And that's why I also did the same thing. I deleted my Facebook app. I deleted uh, my LinkedIn app, Twitter app. And I've found because, and I think the problem, and I'm curious to hear what you think about this. I think one of the problems is that these things are so mobile. I mean, this is with us all the time, whereas my laptop is not with me all the time. I can't just quickly pull it out of my pocket. And so I think that's what, for at least for me, bothered me so much is I always just felt this urge to pull it out. And I think that creates this problem with relationships, conversations, even just having solitude. And I talked about this previously on the podcast. So I agree with that. And I, I think that you mentioned in a previous post, I think it was on LinkedIn, you talked about how you even got rid of having your phone by your bed. Is that still something that you do? And I'm curious Absolutely. if so, why? Yeah, that was really powerful. Um, and I love that you pulled out Atomic Habits as well. James Clear, who's the author of Atomic Habits, he wrote this initial description about, he, he talks about how, uh, like he pictures a aircraft taking off from LAX and just a minute, like a couple degrees of difference in where that nose of that aircraft is pointing at takeoff. If just a simple change in head could send the plane to Boston instead of, you know, Washington, D.C. James Clear is really powerful in the sense that these small little changes actually have monumental results at the at the end. Uh, and I, I love that little image uh, that he describes. Yeah. So a few years ago, I read an article about how 
just the sheer presence of your phone, like when we feel for it in our pocket, when we feel even vibrations uh, that may be like a vehicle driving by, but we start grabbing to our phone because we think it's a notification. I, I read an article about how these are constantly taking us out of moments and taking us out of the present and how when you even sleep with your phone next to your bed, just the presence of that phone gives you the easy ability to reach up and you're just checking the time. But when you check the time, you see, oh, you got an email. Oh, might as well cut it on, flip the email. And now you not only have a backlight that's uh, waking you up and and uh, affecting your ability to continue sleeping, but now your mind is racing and thinking about all the things that you have to do and, and you're not in your moment of relaxation and restoration, which is what sleep is supposed to be. So about two years ago, I made a New Year's resolution where I was going to sleep with my phone away from my bed. So I have an office in my house uh, We have uh, that's apart from our bedroom and I keep my phone plugged in. It's charging, but it's on do not disturb mode, airplane mode, everything mode over there. I don't need a... And people, what I I think it's one of the hilarious things, like, oh, well, it's my alarm clock. It's like, you can just go buy a $5 alarm clock. You don't need a fancy, you know, you don't need your phone to be an alarm clock. And uh, even what we do is we have an Amazon Alexa, which I love because it doesn't have the actual digital display of time. So I just tell my Alexa to uh, set an alarm and uh, it wakes me up when it needs to wake me up. And if it hasn't woken me up, I just stay sleeping. I don't feel the need to go check the time. I know it hasn't yeah. gone off yet and I trust it to, to wake me up. And so what that does is it just eliminates all of the digital hooks that are trying to grab at me and pull me out of this state of relaxation and restoration. And uh, it's a very important uh, part of the journey of being a more productive, well-rested person because I get to make the most out of every day. I wake up every morning and I feel like a million bucks. I sleep sounder through the night than probably the vast majority of my uh, friends. And um, I think that just, again, it's intentional. Uh, yeah. I, 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 like you said, pull up the the drawbridge for those bad habits, make it harder to do the bad habits and make it easier to do the good habits. And I think that was a big part of that journey. Yeah, I think that's so good. I have to confess, I still sleep with my phone by my bed, but I need to make that change. But I think one of the, the big things that has helped me is not having the app on my phone. I used to just habitually wake up in the morning and the first thing I would check without even thinking about it was Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn. And it bothered me. It's like, why, why do I do this? Why is the first thing, the first input into my day, social media? And I, and I, as much as I hated that I did that, I wasn't able to actually stop doing that until I deleted the apps. And I think that just kind of highlights the little tiny habits really add up to now my first input in my day is prayer or something, you know, meditation, thinking about gratitude, things like that, that are so much more healthy for me to start my day than whatever's on Facebook at that moment. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with Facebook. I still have a Facebook account uh, and we may disagree on that. But I think at least for me personally, taking it off my phone has made a world of difference because it just is so much less accessible. And I can Absolutely. really... Well, that's okay. So I think that kind of getting back to reading books, because I really want to dive into this because it's insane that you read 70 plus books, or at least you did this past year. So we've talked about your why. We've talked about what you've said, some of the stuff that you've said no to, which I think is big. 
but I would love to hear about your process because I think there's probably a lot of people that are hearing this and they're thinking, okay, yeah, reading, I agree, that's important to do. I would love to read more books. You've talked about some strategies of saying no, and that's probably a healthy way to carve out time and space to, to read more. But how do you do it? How do yeah. you fit reading into your day? Do you read hardcover books, audio books? When do you do it? I'd just love to hear about some of the habits you formed for reading. Sure, absolutely. And and I want to start off by, you know, saying I'm a working professional just like just like everyone. I have a I have a job. I have a wife. I don't have any kids yet. You know, hopefully uh that my wife and I will will be able to share in that in the near future, but uh you know, my my job is pretty it's it's, it's a serious role. You know, I I have to work more than probably the average bear. Uh so it's not like I have like just this tremendous amount of free time. So I guess why I, I want to make sure that everyone knows that I want this to be a relatable journey. Remember how I said curiosity was a muscle? Uh, with yeah. that, so is reading. Reading is a muscle. And you can't jump in trying to run a marathon if you haven't run, you know, a year doing, let's say, a mile or a couple miles a day, right? Like you got to build up to that number. And I started out by doing the following. First and foremost, when I was, you know, about three, four years ago, when I was starting this journey, I was reading like a, maybe a couple books a year, right? Uh, because I was just kind of caught up in this cyclone of, you know, digital currency, which we just talked about. And I cut that off. And what I decided was I was going to put time on my calendar every morning. I got up at about, I don't know, an hour or half an hour earlier each day um, and started you know, reading. And then that didn't work for me because I was still looking at my phone and getting wrapped up. And so I had to look for something else. And actually for me, the real entry point was audiobooks because mm -hmm. there was this moment in my day, which I felt really unproductive. And that was my commute, either driving into work, or I used to travel a lot for work, like getting on planes. I'd sit on these planes and you know, there's only so many downloaded Netflix reruns that I was going to tolerate. <laughs> so I put on these audiobooks and I just really fell in love with the narration, with the story, with the emotions that some of these books were pulling in me. There's this book called uh, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, um, yeah. which was one of the first ones that uh, I read at this time. And it just pulled me in this direction. I, it, it was a time in our country where I think that book meant a lot. I was sincerely moved by it. And I think it became, I started thirsting for books as I started making a rhythm of it. So I started out reading just, let's say, a book a month, you know, just turning it on when I was walking. I started running and listening to audiobooks. I started doing it when I was uh, traveling, when I was uh, commuting. Then sure enough, I started, you know, accelerating my consumption. At one point, I realized that I wasn't taking notes or remembering content from these books in a way that I wanted to. And so I decided I was going to go back to like a Kindle or hard copy book. And uh, there was a book in particular, uh, Team of Rivals uh, by Doris Kearns Goodwin, which is, you know, everybody knows Team of Rivals. But if you actually read through it and highlight and annotate it, there are so many amazing lessons of leadership of life in there that... I took away and I'm just so grateful. It filled my soul. It's like chicken soup. And so at this point, I'm kind of like making my decision. All right, I'm getting way more out of these investments of time than in my Netflix account and my all this other garbage. So I start shutting off all these other apps and focusing exclusively on consuming books. And then now I'm at a point where at any given time, I try my best to read a book a week or finish a book a week rather. 
the way I do that is at any given moment, I have one hard copy, one audio book, and one Kindle book. I have a Kindle device that doesn't have any applications on it or whatever. And what I love about the Kindles is that they don't really have a strong backlight. So my eyes don't get tired. So at any given point, I have a digital book, a hard copy book, and an audio book in circulation. And I work through each of them every day on various parts of my day. So when I read at night uh, in bed with my wife, or just kind of hanging out reading, I'm on my Kindle or a hard copy book. When I'm on my commute or flying on a plane, uh, I'm reading my Kindle or my audio book. And then uh, sometimes when I'm just really trying to unplug on a weekend, uh, I just do exclusively the hard copy book and really do a, a detox. Then on vacation, you know, those are long plane flights or sometimes not long days by the beach, whatever my wife and I are doing on that vacation, even this holiday season, we're going to have some some downtime. That's one of my favorite times to read. Uh, you know, I get up early. Sometimes I stay up late. Just find it a relaxing thing to do. You know, it's something that I probably will keep doing, I hope, for the rest of my life. Uh, if anything, I want to probably read a little bit less. I want to read books that are probably more difficult for me to understand and get through. I want to reread books that I've read in the past. I don't want to be so focused on the quantity at this point. It's less valuable to me to just read a ton of books every year. Uh, for me, I really want it to be about quality and absorption. Mm -hmm. And those are kind of my next hurdles. How can I read a book and uh, have a level of comprehension on par with, say, Bill Gates? If any of you guys are actually interested in reading more, I highly suggest subscribing to Gates Notes, which is Bill Gates's uh, blog on reading. Uh, he has very much a similar path as I described in his consumption of books. He reads, uh, I, I think, about 60 to 70, even more books a year. He reads about 100 pages an hour. Uh, and his level of comprehension is just incredible. It's very detailed, very organized. And the thing is, is he's not like a, he's a normal guy, right? He's a very intelligent person, but it's a skill he's built up. And uh, following his progress on Gates Notes has been a big inspiration for me mm -hmm. as I've made this uh, change in my life. That's great. I'll put that in the show notes. One question, and I got a few just based on what you said, speed of the audio books. Are you listening at one? level speed, 1.5, 2? Do you vary it? Yeah, that's a great question. So these are things I do. I always start the book at 1.0 or 1.25, like a relatively simple pace. So the first chapter, it's like, uh, you know, just easing into a relationship, right? You got to do the small talk first. I think what that does is it allows me to get a sense of the narrator it allows me to get a sense of the content, like how complex the content is going to be. And if I, as I feel like, okay, I kind of can roll with this narrator. He, you know, sometimes narrators have really thick accents, uh, especially British narrators, and I need to slow <laughs> those down a little bit. But sometimes uh, they're just very conversational and dialect or, uh, you know, cadence that I relate to very well, and I'll speed it up. Sometimes the subject matter is very simple and uh, maybe they're just talking about, you know, something that I already feel comfortable with, subject matter that I already feel comfortable with. And I say, all right, well, we'll speed it up. But uh, if either the, you know, the narrator and I are not meshing well, or if I'm not an expert in the subject matter, I will slow it down. But yeah, I can, I've read books as high as uh, 
1.75x, 2x the speed if I feel very comfortable with the material. And then, of course, uh, I slow it down, keep it slow the whole way if I need a, if I need a handicap. How do you select books? Oh, that is the penultimate question. And <laughs> I think this is, this is something that, Cal, you had said something at the beginning where you were like, you know, I'm not nearly as far along in my reading journey as you are, Rajiv. I want to put some perspective out there. Cal, let me ask you this. How many books are published each year? Ooh. Uh, probably in the hundreds of thousands, millions. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's about you know. There's any uh, depending on how you count self publishing, it can be anywhere between six hundred thousand to a million books a year. Multiply that by how many years you've been alive. You know, let's just let's just be on the yeah. low end. There's six hundred thousand books published every year. You've been alive, let's say thirty three, thirty four years. I mean, even in your lifetime. Forget the books that are well beyond uh, uh, your lifetime. Even just in your lifetime, there's probably been 16, 17 million publications out there, right? Let's just assume worldwide uh, there are, uh, you know, 200, 300, 400 million books out there. If I've read 300 and you've read 60, are either of us really ahead? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, the, that's true. The, yeah. the, the, the wealth of knowledge out there is so vast that it's all relative. We are all so minuscule. And, uh, you know, so just, just remember that we're all on this yeah. journey together. No one's got a, and no one's got a monopoly on this, uh, treasure trove of knowledge. So well, thank you, Reggie, s- for making me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, uh, how do I select books? First off, I think a, the past couple of years have just been sort of willy nilly. What's captured my interest? Recommendation from friends. Um, and then recently, it, it, so I love memoirs, really highly rated memoirs. Uh, I read a book called Educated by Tara Westover, uh, which I think was one of the highest rated memoirs of all time. And I, I read it and I absolutely loved it. Uh, I read books by leaders that I'm really fascinated by. One of the books I read this year, and I'm not a super political person, and I typically do not read political memoirs, but I read The Shortest Way Home by Pete Buttigieg. Uh, and I was just, fa- he's the first millennial. He's the first member of our generation, Cal, to run for president. And I just felt that that title alone was significant enough for me to want to hear this guy's story. I mean, this guy is a Harvard grad, naval officer, Afghan veteran, Rhodes Scholar, McKinsey consultant, uh, speaks seven languages. I was like, what on earth? This guy's amazing. <laughs> I just needed to hear this guy's story. And it was so well told for a political what memoir. I, I got to admit, it wasn't even political. It was just a guy telling a story. And I, I really yeah. respect him for that story. And so, yeah, just things like that. My curiosity would take me in whatever direction. And sometimes I'd be really happy with where it led me. Sometimes not. I tend to read books that people I care about recommend to me. I want us to have an idea, a deeper understanding of each other's worldview. And, you know, Cal, if you tell me that a book really moved you, I will almost read it, even if it's not high on my priority list. But since you are high on my priority list, Cal, I'm going to read it as a way so that I have a better understanding of your worldview. And uh, so th- that's kind of been guiding me thus far. I use Goodreads as my app 
to okay. log all my books that I want to read, that I have read, and that I'm in process reading. I try to leave reviews of all the books I read. And then another thing a lot of people need to know is that when you use Kindle as your reading mechanism, you actually can make highlights and add notes and they will automatically sync to the cloud on Goodreads. So that sort of keeps me on track with like, what are my overall takeaways from a book that I've selected? Now, in this coming year, 2020, I have a goal to read at least 12 books by people's whose worldview I, I know I disagree with or whose uh, thesis is an assumption I do not necessarily subscribe to. That's really neat, man. And I, I, so I want to go back just real quick, kind of tying it back to some of the process for you reading. You talked about the speed of the audiobooks. Oftentimes you'll have books going at once and, and your goal is to, to finish a book. And then you mentioned how, and I love what you said about this, you've kind of maybe pulled it back a little bit and your goal is quality over quantity. What does it mean for you now to pursue quality, I guess? is it? And, and I guess a second question for that is how do you retain the information? What are some ways you found to really help retain? And then do you have a way in which you intentionally share the things that you're learning as you're reading all these books? Yeah, it's, a, 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 it's all part of the, the next year vision for me, man, or goal for me. So when I say quality, what I'm finding now is that particularly in the field of, let's say, business and management, I have found many of the titles that I've read are now starting to get redundant. <laughs> you yeah, know, it, yeah. especially in, say, customer psychology, I basically decided that, you know, what was missing for me was less of the research element, right? I think the research on many of the questions that I'm trying to improve in my life is already there. And I've got enough PhD written books to help me develop in some of the ways I want. And the stories don't change. What changes is the execution and the implementation of these lessons. And I think a big part of that is going to be reading really thorough biographies. And mm -hmm. one of the things I did this year, I read two biographies by Ron Chernow, this yeah. year. And some of you may recall he wrote Hamilton. He also wrote the most recent biography on General Grant, which to me, Grant is the new Hamilton. I'm a huge fan of the bio of General Grant. But this year I read House of Morgan, which was actually Ron Chernow's very first publication. And it was about the history of J.P. Morgan, both John and Pierpont Morgan, the uh, father, son, and eventually John Jr., who is the grandson of the founder of J.P. Morgan, and their story behind this massive, colossal empire of American wealth. And I also read the Ron Chernow biography of John D. Rockefeller, Titan. Mm. And, you know, we're so lucky to have people like Walter Isaacson, David McCullough, Ron Chernow, Doris Kearns Goodwin, these Americans who yeah. find such pleasure and purpose in documenting the lives of these game changers, right? These truly yeah. inspirational people. And so I think part of this journey is these books are no small investment, by the way, right? We're talking 800 to 1,000 yeah. pages sometimes. And very, very detailed, meticulously detailed. So the process is slower. It is more thoughtful. 
But I think in committing to these long form books, what I have found is that I have a much deeper appreciation for the person's life, the depth mm. of their thought and their conviction, and also their humanity, just how actually they were normal people just like you and me. And it was the way they made decisions, the risks they took, and their worldviews that they cultivated, which set them apart. I think John D. Rockefeller in particular, the book Titan by Ron Chernow, mm -hmm. I learned more about American capitalism and the conflicts we're seeing today as Americans in our economy and in our political environment. I learned more about our current landscape from that book than I would ever have learned watching CNN, reading the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or any blog post or even many political memoirs today. What I learned from John, the life of John D. Rockefeller is how a capitalist is cultivated, right? How, what were the values of this man's family that led to him being so aggressive and unrelenting in his pursuit of capital wealth and accumulation. And even more interestingly enough is the dichotomy between different types of capitalism, right? We don't often talk that not all capitalism is executed equally. In this case, it was a conflict between monopoly capitalism with true laissez-faire principles, which was kind of what JDR was all about, versus competitive capitalism and just making sure that we can foster an environment where, you know, we are encouraging of business rights, but we believe all businesses should be competing on the equal landscape. Uh, it is a really interesting question that I think is very pertinent today's political discovery. Uh, and I think Elizabeth Warren, for example, I think is an, uh, very interestingly uh, trying to break up, you know, big tech. And I think a lot of it is, you know, s stemming from uh, some historical examples where companies just got so big that they distorted the free market. And it's just so interesting to hear where some of these theses come from. John D. Rockefeller also was one of the most generous benefactors that we have ever seen. And yet his name isn't on a lot of big buildings or anything like that. But he basically funded Spelman College, a school for black women in uh, Atlanta. He funded the University of Chicago, a huge benefactor of medicine, education, and the arts around the globe. Tremendously generous man. And you know, another interesting thing is that he was a devout Baptist Christian. Wow. Uh, he never had a sip of alcohol. He didn't go to parties after work. He was at home with his wife and kids every night he possibly could. To see a man with so many resources, so much wealth, and yet so resistant to indulge just was such an interesting manifestation of discipline that I had never seen before in modern capital America. And I, you know, I work in the private sector now and I get to see what big tech looks like from the inside out. And I got to say, you know, it, it got me really, really interested in, in how we can learn from history to improve our decision making today. So the, the, it is a long winded answer to your question. But when I want to read deeply and more thoroughly, what I think I want to do is start reading really detail oriented examples of the principles that I've already uh, researched. 
you know, I can read enough research books by Adam Grant, by Amy Cuddy about behavioral psychology, organizational culture, but to read the biography of Steve Jobs to see how it was actually implemented in its most detailed form and uh, take slow, methodical notes on the lessons I've learned. And every time I hear a statement or a quote that really resonates with me, to take a moment, pause, write it down, reflect on it, uh, slow down the learning process. I think that's what I mean by quality over quantity. That's awesome. And I think, I mean, just hearing you talk about that highlights the depth of understanding you get on a topic like capitalism. How often do we hear that thrown around? But to be able to read and pull from someone who lived out that is incredible. So, all right, so I, what I'd love to do right now, so we've talked about your process. I would love for, so say there's someone out there who is like, hey, I love what you're talking about. Love the idea. This year, I'd love to start reading. I'd love to really make that something that becomes part of my life. I'd be interested to hear what you would tell them. And I would love to maybe in like six months, maybe we'll have you back on the podcast to, to talk about this. But what what would you tell someone who would really like to start creating a habit of reading in 2020? Yeah. So I think first, I what I would tell them is to, you know, crawl, walk, run. I would say, pick a book. And the first thing is really just picking that first book. I believe what I would want to do if I were in this process again is go to someone in my life who's a very close friend or maybe a, a family member and ask them, try and find someone you care about and ask them, what is a book that has shaped your worldview? What is one of the most impactful books you've ever read? And I think if you approach reading less of an act of like improving yourself, but as an act of love and as an act of service, what you could find is that you might be more devoted to it. And uh, if I found, if Cal, I'm going to approach you, I'm going to say, Cal, what is your favorite book? What is the book that's shaped your worldview? And then let's say you tell me that book is Give and Take by Adam Grant. And I would say, all right, well, Cal, I'm going to do it for you. I want to read a book that, that has shaped you so I can understand you better and enrich our relationship. So then I read it and take your time, be slow, methodical, buy some sticky notes or not sticky notes, uh, tabs, sticky tabs. And just, you know, if you're reading a hard copy, you know, throw those tabs in the book, make highlights, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. I would also suggest, you know, varying between a audiobook and a, a hard copy book or a Kindle book, you know, try reading in all three formats, see what works for you. There's no right answer. There's no time limit. The only thing that is there is the pursuit. And as long as you're on the journey, you're getting there, you're, you're on your way. So yeah, I, I think building that list is, uh, is very critical. Now, I also want to say something that's very important. If at any point you are bored, not that you disagree with the author, not that you just don't have the time, but if any point in this journey, the book you're reading does not satisfy you for whatever reason, but preferably one of like, it's either not well-written, it's not well-researched, throw it away, get another one, right? Life is too mm. short and the laundry list of high quality, life-changing books out there is too large for you to waste any time on a book that doesn't bring you joy. You got to Marie Kondo that that book list. <laughs> <laughs> and for those who don't That's know, Marie Kondo, yeah, Marie Kondo wrote a book called The Life-Changing Art, Tidying Up, where she talks about just every single object in your life should bring you joy. 
And if you got an object that doesn't actually trigger an emotion of joy in your heart, you got to get rid of it. And I think books fall squarely into that category. Not all, not actually the physically book, physical book, but the actual pursuit of that book. The minute it is not, it is clutter in your life, just put it to the side and don't even worry about it. That's great advice. So I would love to hear what are your top three books that maybe you've gifted or that you would recommend? I know that's probably hard for someone that's, that's read as much as you have. Uh, not really. I, I think uh, a couple actually come top of mind. We've mentioned a couple of my favorites already and I've talked about them, so I won't belabor the point. But Give and Take by Adam Grant is probably my favorite management book. I think it's a, it's a good way to live life. And I've tried every day to be a giver and not a taker. I'll let your readers uh, investigate that to uh, discover what that truly means. I read a book, of course, Team of Rivals, I believe is on there. I'd also say my favorite book, you're never going to believe this, Cal, and you're going to laugh when I tell you this, <laughs> but my favorite book of all time is How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Have you uh, heard of this by any chance? No. I'm going to have to check this out. How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. <laughs> Okay. Basically, right. it is a book about psychedelics. Oh, goodness. Mushrooms right. and LSD. And oh, so this was an attempt to read something that I had no exposure to. I had never tried any of these uh, substances before. But can I tell you something? I got more from this book than I've gotten from anything. And I'll tell you why. It's because what he did in this book, when Paul, and I love Michael Pollan. He is a wonderful author. He's written the book called Cooked, Botany of Desire. He's primarily a writer on food. Um, hmm. But this time he started to take a look at uh, psychedelics, namely LSD and mushrooms. Or uh, What I found was that he told a story that had to do with chemistry, with history, hmm. with sociology, with so many different subjects that I found he was so passionate and articulate about. It was one of the most well-researched stories that I've ever read. He made me understand American policy better. He made me understand chemistry better. He made me kind of discover a new way of looking at the world and how stigma can dramatically affect a society's adoption of methods that are actually potentially even healthier for us than the medicines that your doctor may prescribe you from a pharmaceutical company. And it was just such an interesting way of looking at the world that uh, it, it triggered a lot of curiosity and, uh, and passion in me. So I was really impressed. So Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind, was absolutely one of my favorite books. So that was uh, that is, uh, very interesting. That's so funny. So, okay, when you first mentioned that and you described it, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Rajib's recommending a drug book. Is this like a book? This is a book for people who aren't into drugs, right? This is just, it, it challenges the way you think. <laughs> it is a book for anyone who wants to explore a facet of society that they don't know about. And that's basically mm. what I found was I put down the book feeling more in touch with the 1960s uh, and you know, the, you know, LSD and, and mushrooms played a big part in Silicon Valley. Both Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, many entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley openly discussed their use of these these substances. And uh, I learned about the scientific background of how they were discovered in the first place, 
what is it that they actually unblock on the emotional spectrum and the subjects that use them? I don't use these substances by any means, but I have a, a different understanding and appreciation of why some people do. And that was just a, a cool story that I got to read. Yeah. And I think that highlights how powerful books are and how I think you have developed, and I think it's important for us to develop a habit of challenging our own way of thinking. And I think by, and you've mentioned it already, but by setting a goal to read 12 books of people that maybe you disagree with their worldview or a thesis that you disagree with, or by reading this book, it just highlights the importance of constantly challenging our thinking, because if we're not careful, we lose our ability to think outside of our own you know, myopic view, or we lose the ability to be creative because we're just thinking the same way all the time. We create those same neural pathways. So really interesting. I'm, I appreciate the fact that you, uh, that you <laughs> were willing to share that. Okay. Absolutely. So hey, one of the themes of this show, and it's kind of the tagline that I always talk about at the end of the show is that life is short and we got to make it count. And I would love it if you, if you're comfortable doing this, if you would share the story that I think really made that at the forefront of your mind about how short life can be. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm an avid skier. I love to ski and, uh, you know, Cal, uh, you and I have hit the mountain before, you know, that I just, I love it up there. And in February of, I guess it would have been 2016. It was a Thursday and I was in my, uh, I have a house in, in Tahoe and I was, uh, basically taking a day off work. I was working from, I was working from the mountain that day and I decided, you know, I'm going to go up on the mountain and do a couple runs first. I don't want to start the day off on a computer. I need to go get some, get some turns in. So go to the mountain and I leave my phone in my car. I go up on the California base of Heavenly and, uh, I traverse around the mountain and I go down a, a run called Kilbrew Canyon, which, uh, is a, is a pretty, it's an, it's a run that's very high and on the edge of the resort. And, uh, without going into too much, uh, mechanical detail, I end up off the reservation. I, uh, find myself stuck in the back country and I had no phone, no means to, you know, contact anyone. And I was yelling and screaming at the top of my lungs and, uh, no one could hear me. And, uh, I ended up skiing into some brush and uh, getting stuck. And, you know, there's four feet of snow on the ground. It's cold. It's February. For a minute, I legitimately think I'm going to die here. I just had this feeling of horror that this could be my end. And I took this moment, and very much I think it stemmed from my time in the Army, when I took a breath and said, okay, you can do this. I unclipped my skis I kept my poles and I fought through the brush and I actually found a creek that was going down the mountain. And it was the fastest thing going down the mountain. You know, if I wanted to continue on land, I'd be wading through four feet of snow, but I could in my ski boots and ski pants jump in that creek and that would be the fastest thing going down. So that's what I did. I jumped in the creek, was flying downhill. I was going over logs, mud. And it was just uh, really, really, uh, cold and dirty and scary. And then eventually I got to a point about a couple hundred meters down in this creek where I got off the side of the edge and started just trucking, traversing, 
uh, across the landscape, just hoping to find a road, a fire road, something. Even if I did come across a fire road, I mean, I don't even know if I would recognize it. There was so much snow on the ground. While I was out there, I just, every 10 feet, I would stop and I would just yell for help, see if somebody magically could hear me. And, you know, for hours and hours, uh, no one could hear me. Towards the end of the day, it turns out another skier uh, had made the exact same ma- mistake as I had and eventually had found me and uh, heard me yelling. And we were about 300, 400 meters apart. And uh, I was able to walk to their position. And that person had a cell phone. And uh, believe it or not, we found a third skier that day that had made the same decision. And so we eventually discovered that the trail had been mismarked. And uh, we were all just search, And, you know, with the cell phone, we were able to call for search and rescue and get evacuated out of there. We had to walk to a to the snow line and some ATVs came up and got us. So through that whole journey, I was doing a lot of self-reflecting. And, you know, Cal, I've, I've, my life has been in danger a number of times. And each time I would, if had, had that been in Afghanistan, had I lost my life, pretty much every time I would have died with no regrets. I feel like generally speaking, I was a good person, a good son, a good brother, a good citizen. And I think at a young age, I was able to reconcile like, if this is it, no problem. It's been a good run. But on that day in February, 2016, I had a regret. And that was, I had not proposed to my wife. I had not had the chance to tell her just how much I loved her and uh, how much she meant to me. And sometimes, Cal, you know, in these moments of danger, you get these visions of clarity, all the distractions, the social posturing, the, the likes and the shares, which clouds our priorities goes away. And I just knew that she was the one for me. And I was not going to let another day go by without a ring on her finger, or at least the, <laughs> asking the question, I should say. <laughs> so, uh, search, search, search rescue comes, takes us off the mountain on the drive home. I eventually make it back to my car and I frostbite and I'm not doing so well, but on the drive home, I call my mom and my dad. I call Chelsea's parents, her six brothers and sisters, her aunts. I make sure that I go through several filters that I am not crazy for wanting to do this. They all are like, nah, man, it's meant to be. Let's do this. I drive down to San Francisco that night by a ring the next day. And, uh, the next day I proposed to Chelsea and, uh, thank God she said, yes, best, absolutely the best decision I ever made. I love that story. And I, I'm so sorry that you went through that obviously, but I love that. It just highlights how we just never know Here you're off skiing at Tahoe, a place that's safe and fun. And next thing you know, you're literally contemplating the regrets of your life and, and whether you've lived an intentional life, whether you've focused and, you know, made those decisions in a way that are deliberate and in line with your purpose and the things that you care about. So I just wanted people to hear that because I think it highlights how we never know and we never know how much time we have and, and we need to spend it and we need to focus on our limited time on the things that, that really matter most. So thanks for sharing that, Reggie. My pleasure. We've covered so many great things. If people want to find you, I know we talked about you're you're not really super active on social media, but what what are the best ways people can find you? I know that you're on LinkedIn, right? Is is that just Rajiv Srinivasan? Yeah, on LinkedIn. Very easy. Rajiv Srinivasan on LinkedIn works for LinkedIn, 
And uh, yeah, I enjoy connecting with people. And, you know, one thing that I'm very proud of at LinkedIn is uh, Jeff Weiner really talks a lot about both the virtuous and the vicious cycle of networks. Jeff Weiner is our CEO, by the way. And so what he means by that is, you know, networks, uh, these connections we have can lead to prosperity. They can lead you to help finding a job and to doing well and to maybe closing a deal if you're in sales or landing a new account. And that's great. But the problem is that networks can also box other people out. And he talks about networks as a function of your hometown where you grew up, your educational background, whether you went to a top tier school or not. And then, of course, the brand names on your resume, whether you worked for a let's say, a, a, a brand name company. And if you have done all of those things, you are 10 times as likely to have a strong network as someone who does not have any of those things. And so hmm. we at LinkedIn have something called the plus one pledge, which is our commitment to helping out people, at least one person each year who is not in our network, not in our third degree network. And so I have taken that pledge. And uh, when someone reaches out to me and adds a note and saying, Hey, Rajiv, I'd love to connect with you for advice on transitioning out of the military, on reading, on applying to business school, or in, in the most uh, virtuous of situations, maybe it's someone who actually is looking for economic opportunity. It is absolutely my pleasure to help those outside of my network. And I've taken that pledge. I believe in it. And, um, you know, I, uh, I, I really do believe in LinkedIn's mission of, uh, you know, we want to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. Uh, we want to give you a, uh, give as many hands up as we can. And so, um, you know, uh, please, by all means, reach out to me on LinkedIn. There's a reason I live intentionally and I made an intentional decision to work at this company. And so uh, I'm very proud of it and uh, I'm eager to uh, help in any way I can to your uh, to your audience. I know Rajiv means every word that he has said, and I love that that's part of LinkedIn's mission. And I can tell, we've talked about it before, just how it's so neat that you have landed on a company and in a company that really aligns with your values. And I love that. And I would love to to have you back on. Uh, there's so many topics that I wanted to get to today. I think we only got to about a tenth of my notes. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I want to be respectful of, of your time. And hey, before we close, I just want to, if, if this is your first time listening to Intentional Living and Leadership, I just want to welcome you and thank you for, for listening today. Uh, if you'd love to get uh, future episodes, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's on iTunes or any of the number of podcast platforms that are out there. I, I want you to know I appreciate you being here. And this is a place I hope to bring you great guests like Rajiv and also talk about ways to live more intentionally and then ways to lead and inspire other people really to make the most of the time that we have. Also, thank you so much to everyone out there that has left a rating on iTunes or a written review. And that is so something I sincerely appreciate. It also helps us get the podcast out there and more accessible the more people you'll be able to find this episode and all the show notes uh, wherever you consume the podcast. You can also find it at calwalters.me. That's C-A-L-W-A-L-T-E-R-S dot M-E. Rajiv, I can't thank you enough. Today, I learned a lot just from sitting and listening to you. I'm so thankful that you gave uh, this podcast and, and this audience your time. I know you're super busy 
balancing everything you got going on. So thank you so much, buddy. I appreciate you coming on today. It's my pleasure, man. All the time in the world for you. All right, brother. Well, hey, we'll have to get you back on here soon. And again, for those that are for are listening to the podcast, either right before the new year or in the new year, let's make the most of every day, as Rajiv mentioned, because life is short and we got to make it count. Mm-hmm.